Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy. Hey guys, welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. I'm here today on Zoom um, with Melissa, of course, and we have a guest, Bridger, who's joined us to talk about some really exciting, interesting things. Before we get started on that, I just want to kind of share a few things that we have been working on and spending some of our time during quarantine focused on. Melissa, do you want to start out by sharing about the free class that we're We've been working on. Yeah. Um, so we did a, a collaborative project with Catherine Keller. You guys have heard us talk about her quite a bit because she's helped Jen and I so much with our business. And she has created a class for you guys. It's called Five Reasons Why Your Therapy Your Therapy Private Practice May Not Survive COVID-19, which I know sounds a little ominous, but <laughs> um, this class is hugely helpful and has a lot of in-depth information. Um, she breaks down the five steps you need in order to gain clarity and really just to renew excitement about building your practice and marketing yourself in an authentic way during this time of transition for everyone. We're all feeling that nothing is ever going to be the same and that goes for our practices as well. So Catherine really takes the time to walk through step-by-step step with us the things that we need to be thinking about and then very practical advice on things that we can be doing. She doesn't believe there's a one-size-fits-all marketing strategy, so when it comes to building your practice, she's going to help you figure out what's going to work for you. Her goal is to focus on each of us individually, our strengths, our skills, so that we can build an authentic marketing plan that's right for us. Um, so if you want to check out this free resource, and I really suggest that you do, go to www www.katherinekeller.net and that's k-a-t-h-e-r-i-n-e-k-e-l-l-e-r.net slash emdr and you guys can access that free class and get a whole bunch of help to make sure that your practice thrives during this time. So our other baby that we've been working on we mentioned in a couple episodes ago is a new podcast Um, So we're super excited to have that to offer, hopefully in the very near future. We're wanting to put something together that's more client-focused, something that you guys can share as a research with all, or as a a resource with all the clients that you work with, um, that's about trauma, about healing process, that's focused on if you are the one who's experienced the trauma, um, with a lot of great information. And that is really why we've brought Bridger on as a guest today, because he's going to be a huge part in that work that we do and um, another host on that podcast. So we'd love for you guys to get to know his voice and his story and just kind of hear um, all of the wisdom that he has and experience that he has. So as we jump into our episode today, Bridger, welcome to our podcast episode. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Melissa, you have worked with Bridger for a while now and um, have known him in a lot of capacities. So do you want to give a little brief intro about what you know about Bridger? Yeah. So the way that Bridger and I met, he was actually my student, which makes me feel slightly old, but that's okay. (laughs) Um, And he sat in the front row the entire time. And my very, very first impression of him was when he came up to comment on something we had talked about in class. And the first thing, I don't know if you remember this, the first thing you ever said to me was, (laughs) uh, you said, just so you know, I'm a big fan. (laughs) I'm like, I don't think I've ever had a student say that to me. And I'm really okay with this. Like, more students should talk to their professors this way. Amen. Anyway, I advocate for that all the time. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we had a great time during that class. And then uh, shortly after that, you got trained in EMDR through the training center that Jen and I work with. Um, and the super exciting news is that we're actually uh, bringing Bridger on to be part of our team. Uh, with our private practice beyond healing center and that's going to be rolling out in just a couple of months but one of the big things that you're going to be doing with us here at the center is our brand new podcast Uh, the podcast is called beyond trauma and um, i have been thinking and dreaming about this podcast for a long time and part of why we wanted you to be involved with it is because of the particular things that you are super passionate about yeah and that brings us to what we're going to talk about today which is polyvagal theory 
because this is one of the things that just lights you up. And yes. <laughs> so we really want to hear you talk about that today. And so you can share anything you want to about yourself, um, but also about what your vision is for the new podcast, how you see it serving uh, clients and therapists alike, and most of all, what gets you so uh, excited about PBT. Yeah. Um, and I do, I think I remember what you said that made me certain that I wanted to come up to you after the class, which is you made a distinction between uh, therapies that hit the front of your head versus therapies that hit the back of your head. And I just lost oh. my mind. Like, it's just like, yep, this is all I care about. This is all I want to do. Yeah, that's um, a whole other conversation. Yes. We have a long so, podcast about that. That's right. That's what we're about, right? Generating yeah. content. That's true. Um, yeah, so um, there's so much to say here for me, and uh, we kind of talked before we started recording about the need for some brake pedaling a little bit, so you, you might have to help me with that. But one of the reasons I think that I'm so excited about polyvagal theory and some of the other things that I'll talk about um, is as a learner, um, which is my number one strength, I'm constantly looking for organizational kind of gathering tools to better understand the information that I find the most relevant to any given situation. And there are some very precious and few moments that come along in life where something enters your awareness that puts everything else in order. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are very special moments. Um, it's, it's like the, one of the most precious gifts that you can receive as a learner is here's a, here's a framework and a whole, you know, tradition of research that has been done that is actually answering questions that you've been asking all along and answers questions that you didn't even know you could ask. Yeah. So the reason to me that that's so precious is because it, it lets me build then on top of it. And when I started my training as a therapist and started thinking about you know, the human condition and, and how we are all journeying through this life together, um, that learning framework of my mind really found its room to run. Um, this is some of the deepest questions that you can ask, which is what my brain is fascinated by, which is why do people do what they do and what happens when various circumstances um, kind of topple us over and, and how do we work through that? So when I found polyvagal theory or when it found me, you know, as cheesy as that sounds, like that's kind of how it felt. Um, it, it just turned on so many lights for me. And I'm really, really excited to get to talk about it here. Yeah. Well, so let's just start with that. By the way, what you said about like that thing crashing into your world and organizing all of the thoughts that you've ever had. That's exactly how yeah. I felt about EMDR. Yes, I was thinking it was the like, same thing. Oh, Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Why why did no one ever say it that way? That yes. makes so much sense. And I feel like it's an incredibly exciting time to be a therapist because mm -hmm. there is a noticeable shift. Mm -hmm. Um and and maybe it's just the quality of research that we're able to get our hands on and get access to and produce that is starting to organize all of these experiences that we've been having. Yeah. And it, it, I think it helps us uh, be so much better at what we do. And I really feel like it's so supportive to us as therapists, right? Mm -hmm. It's like this lovely uh, safety net that we can lean on when we're really in the weeds with a client going, oh my gosh, what are we doing here? These theories come along to support us. Yes. And one of the things that we wanted to mention was as we were preparing for this episode, we started talking about it and we thought we would, okay, we're going to do one episode about PVT and, <laughs> and we realized, oh, no, we're not going to do that. There's way too much here to even, you know, begin to unpack yeah. in one episode. So we are going to do two parts. And today, really what we're going to focus on is the big question, which is what is it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um and we're going to get to that next, you know, what is polyvagal? And then the other question that we're going to focus on is how do we use it as a lens, right? How do we start to conceptualize our cases? Um, and Bridget, we're just going to let you talk about how you've made that shift because I think you've really seamlessly integrated the lens of polyvagal theory into how you work with people in the practical yeah. sense. And so yeah. for our listeners, um, this episode is going to be more about the theory and, um, you know, the concepts. Mm -hmm. And the next episode is going to be the super practical. How do we apply this with our specific cases? Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're going to have two parts because this topic is just way too big to do yeah. one because it's I was that thinking important. 
petitioning for a five series, you know, five episode <laughs> series, because I feel like that would be adequate, but yes. <laughs> we can try here. You might sell yeah. us on that. As we hear you start talking, you might really sell us on the idea of more yeah. episodes with it. But Just know that's a hidden agenda of mine okay. as we continue this. <laughs> Good to know. Good I to think know. This is why we're just going to have you have a whole podcast of your own. <laughs> Amen. Yes. <laughs> I think yeah, for we'll everybody... Be there too, but listening though is today we really just want you to hear kind of a a brush over in that idea of the foundation Bridger you mentioned once you get that structure then your mind has the freedom to start to build off of that and I think whether it's EMDR whatever theoretical approach that is if we can have a really solid understanding of the, the basics and the structure of it we have this freedom to then start to use our therapeutic instincts and our judgment and, and our individualizing the approach with our clients to build upon that to see some really incredible things happen rather than just a list of interventions that we have to memorize and try these. But it's more about creating something really special and individual for each client that we can see yeah. big work happen. Yeah, this is not a manual um, in any sense of the word. This isn't, you know, going to come with interventions that are going to solve all of your problems, but this is going to increase, I mean, to the nth degree, the awareness and insight that you have on your client's uh, case, as well as their understanding of themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that will become really evident as I as I begin to share about polyvagal theory. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So can we just start with that question of what is it? You know, how yeah. do you, you know, introduce this to clients? How do you describe it? And then also some shout outs to the people that have done the hard work and the research oh and written gosh. all the books yes. that we're learning from because there's yes. some, you know, research giants that we want to give credit to. Oh my gosh, just perpetually. I wish we just build a, you know, just a structure that is just to say thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. So in this talk, keeping in mind the two, parts that we're going to do. I'm going to talk about the three components of polyvagal theory, um, which Deb Dana is one of those research giants that we've talked about. uh, She has worked directly with Stephen Porges, the um, originator of the theory uh, for the past 20 plus years, um, to synthesize this very technical uh, neurobiological research um, from the medical side of the aisle into a therapy wellness perspective. She's done so much and just, like I said, just continual thanks has been, is given to Deb Dean. And she has a couple books that I don't know if we can give links to them, but she has a few books that are out um, that, uh, and she just came out with one very recently with exercises uh, into it. Sorry, did I lose you guys? Nope, we can hear you. Nope, you're okay, still there. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, on Zoom, it's kind of touch and go. So. It's true. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm going to talk about the three components of polyvagal theory, and then I'm going to talk about um, how and why EMDR is so relevant and so powerful to combine with polyvagal theory. Um, does that kind of fit the scope of your answer? Would that Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay, perfect. Well, without further ado, let's jump into the three components. So um, basically, there's uh, three things that really define polyvagal theory, and that's number one, autonomic hierarchy, which I'll get into all of these later. Uh, number two is neuroception, and that's interoception and exteroception. And then number three is co-regulation. So these three components um, establish the uh, you know major points of the theory, and then there's so much underneath it so we'll kind of touch back on this in the second part of the conversation as well but within that um i do want to kind of give brief descriptions of them if that's okay with you guys please do awesome so the autonomic hierarchy and we can give another shout out here to babette rothschild she Mm -hmm. did so much so early on to synthesize this technical language for therapists. And I know so many of us that are in the field of trauma and body work of any kind are familiar with her work. Um, But in her book, she talks about the differentiation within the autonomic nervous system of parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. Um, You know, the sympathetic hosting those mechanisms of flight, fight, um, what would come later is freeze also. And then the uh, parasympathetic giving host to the green zone or like, you know, you know, the great stuff. Um, well, 
what Stephen Porges in the late 90s and early 2000s found was that actually, um, while there is a sympathetic branch that has flight, fight, and freeze, the parasympathetic is also host to perhaps one of the most dangerous states that we can enter as human beings, um, which he would come to call dorsal vagal shutdown. Um, so we're going to get into that a little bit, but just establishing the autonomic hierarchy um, within polyvagal theory specifically, uh, building on the foundation of Rothschild's work, there is the ventral vagal, which is the highest, most green zone, you know, if you're going to use colors, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. green zone to, uh, to be in. Ventral vagal or social engagement system is what it's often called, is where we start out. This is where we're feeling safe, we're feeling uh, good enough to uh, be open to connection, to be uh, in relationship with people. We're feeling like we can, um, you know, kind of go about our day, accomplish our goals, you know, find joy and excitement in the moment. Um, And then given... Sorry, there's so much there. Uh, Neuroception, which is that second piece, the second point of the hierarchy, is what is constantly scanning the environment. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But let's say that something comes into your awareness that makes you a little bit worried. Perhaps it's, you know, maybe you forgot about something, um, uh, an appointment on your schedule, or even at the most extreme, there's a physical threat to you. That's when you're going to drop down the hierarchy into sympathetic activation. So this is that kind of classic flight and fight. And I'm going to hold freeze for the third bottom level just for a second. So in your, in your framework of your mind, sympathetic holding fight and flight. So this is where our body then, you know, asks itself, do I have the resources necessary to fight this thing or do I need to run? Whatever it is. And making that distinction between interoception, you know, your own internal experience and then extraception, what, in the environment needs to be, you know, uh, avoided or overcome or whatever. So let's say that the answer to those questions, do I have the resources necessary to fight or to run? What if the answers are no, we don't have what we need. That is when the body shifts all the way through the floor into dorsal vagal shutdown. This is what, this is one of the scariest experiences for people. Um, it's a state that we're not, not built to come out of without some serious scars. And so in your trauma work, you can start to see a lot of this. Uh, this is where a lot of this happens. And um, one of the labels to this that's been given is immobilization with fear. So you can just imagine, like, even as I say those words, my body, my body tingles. <laughs> I'm just like, mm-hmm. I don't like that idea at all of being paralyzed and terrified. So one of the main points that I want to highlight here in becoming aware of the autonomic hierarchy is that once we have an awareness of this, we almost have, you know, like a blueprint to go throughout our experience of, uh, you know, handling various um, challenges or even looking at some of those traumas in our life. And and it starts to normalize and de-shame. A lot of it, you you know, it's fault becomes a, a non-issue here. It's it's not your fault that your body responded the way that it did. This is this is evolution and, and biology that you're working against here. So to me, in my work with my clients, I highlight that I highlight the heck out of that. I just point to this and say, you know, this is so important to become aware of, because as we start to talk more about the other two components, interception and co-regulation you're going to start to see that this hierarchy and having an awareness of where you're at at any given point in any given situation becomes so relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of exercises uh, within Dana's work that uh, she calls it befriending the nervous system, which I, I love that, that yeah. terminology. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, so before yeah. you move to the next thing, so just to kind of connect some dots in people's mind, because I remember when I was first you know, exposed to polyvagal theory and trying to understand it, um, it helps us to kind of hook it to things that we're already familiar with. Right. So one of the ways that this was uh, described to me that made a whole lot of sense is everything that we know about dissociation, we can hook it to that dorsal vagal shutdown. Yes. Yes. Right. And there, and we need more research to fully understand like how all of this operates and why it's different for some people, et cetera, the the manifestation of it. But basically 
the strange set of symptoms that we see with clients that have dissociative tendencies begins to be explained when we understand what's happening in their nervous system yeah, through this right. theory. Yeah. That dorsal vagal shutdown, the as they head towards that shutdown, they don't even have to be all the way there, and we right. already start to see some changes in behavior. And that's really important when we're talking to clients about it, because that's when you start to sense like, oh, my nervous system is responding to something, right? Right. So, so that that kind of hooking together of all right, we know some stuff about dissociation, and this is where I put it within this theory, and then the same thing with fight flight. Um, everything we know about that, we can connect it with what's happening in the nervous system. Totally. It maps on 100%. And, I, and I'd like to say one more thing on that, um, which is this, aside from just being de-shaming and normalizing, it's it shows everything as adaptive, um, mm. which is what I constantly highlight. There's that kind of distinction between what's maladaptive behavior and adaptive behavior. I kind of reject that dualistic distinction in lieu of saying we wouldn't do anything if it wasn't adaptive and in looking at how we respond to traumatic situations that's true even at the subconscious level Hmm. um so in our descent into the dissociated state you know things that you often experience like amnesia (laughs) or feelinglessness um in dissociative states or you know paralyzation that is completely consistent in dorsal vagal shutdown and it's important to note the adaptability that that is, because think of what it would mean if you were to say, no, I can't handle this situation. Like at a cellular level, I don't have the resources to do it. Well, mm-hmm. death is inevitable. At least that's what your body is thinking. Mm-hmm. So it's going to shut down on you. Mm-hmm. It's going to try to protect you from experiencing whatever is about to shut you out. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, you know, your, your memory is going to go, you're going to become, you, you know, you're not going to be able to feel things very well. You're going to become attuned to things that you normally aren't because your body's telling itself it's going to shut down. Mm-hmm. Now, if things don't kill us and we come out of that state, we have a big problem with memory. Well, you, yeah. you mentioned before you come out with a lot of scars. Um, yes. What would be, as a therapist working with clients who have been to that place, what would yeah. be some of the scars that we might be seeing that might indicate, oh, hey, this was the adaptation that they utilized or they had to, you know, their brain yeah. moved into, I think, dissociation or even dissociating ongoing or in sessions, that's an indication. Yeah. What would be some of the other scars that we might be looking for? Yeah, and I just want to give a picture into my experience of hearing you talking, which, you know, it's so... Uh, reverential getting into oh sorry if I lost you guys Uh, up here there we can still hear you you can still okay cool Uh Uh, even if you can't see me good Um, Mm -hmm. I just have so much um, reverence for entering that space with clients because Mm -hmm. it's a space that humans aren't designed to go Um, and just to like really think of the weight of that is really important for me as I do this work. Um, because when you're talking to somebody who's been there, um, you know, there, there's not words that are appropriate really mm-hmm. for like how hard that was. And so this work has done so much to soften my heart towards those people that have been there. Um, so sorry, I just wanted to say that as a preface. Um, no, I actually then, love that you say that. And it, as you say it, your heart comes through. And I think yeah. that um, each of us as therapists taking that on is yeah. a healing aspect for our clients. For one, we may personally know what it's like to go there yes. and to be able to let that shine through in, in some ways of just a sense of empathy and understanding of the darkness and the, the difficulty of experiencing something that would take you to that place. But then also just um, for a client to feel seen in that and notice rather than labeled or disregarded or looked at as crazy or judged, um, but to really be seen in that place, I think is so healing in and of itself. Well, and you'll, you'll find that as we get into that third piece of co-regulation, it's actually necessary. Yeah. Um, you have to meet them. Mm-hmm. And, and if you won't, that's not going to be a corrective emotional experience. That's going to condition the nervous system to health. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but to answer your question of what can we look for, I think the DSM, while I have my struggles with it, 
as a diagnostic list of symptoms, um, it does anatomize really well what the dorsal vagal experience is um, in, in talking about PTSD um, and complex PTSD. This is conditioning the nervous system to become well accustomed to a dorsal vagal existence, which is one of fragmented social relationships, antisocial behavior, you know, uh, those flashback classic symptoms, nightmares, sleep mm-hmm. disorder, that type of thing. Um, also, I would have my ears perked up. Well, that's kind of a difficult thing because I always am thinking PVT, but specifically with like eating disorders. Um, mm-hmm. This is something that the body is so accustomed to doing with food and the dissociation relationship there uh, that really at any point working with these disorders, um, you, you need to be aware of what their nervous system is doing. Because if you, you know, go back, going back to what I loved, Melissa, in your class of, if you start talking to the front of their brain uh, in therapy, that's not the part that made the decision to shut down. It's the back of the brain. So you need to then respond in your intervention with, oh, I'm talking directly to their nervous system right now. Their prefrontal cortex wasn't even online. You know, that's something that goes offline really quick when you start to descend down that autonomic mm-hmm. hierarchy it goes off as the second you get out of ventral vagal yeah go ahead and, and this no no this is the spot right here where for those of us that are emdr therapists it all starts to come together mm-hmm. yeah because emdr is a tool that is specifically designed mm-hmm. not to bypass but to go far beyond the front of our brain that's right and to work specifically and directly with the nervous system yeah, that's right. the questions that we're asking during assessment phase of emdr is about activating the nervous system, right? Mm -hmm. It's about turning that whole system on so that as we're doing our reprocessing work, their whole nervous system is involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the part of the change that we see for people that go through the EMDR process with this, to put it in the, the polyvagal um, framework, is that their nervous system becomes more agile. It becomes more resilient, meaning yeah, right. that you know they if they do go down into that dorsal vagal shutdown, they they spend less time down there and they know how to bring themselves out more quickly. Yes, and hopefully, eventually, they're not going down there at all. They catch it faster. They understand how to help themselves from going into full shutdown. EMDR is working directly with the nervous system response. Yeah. Right? Every time we're asking body-based questions, every time we're having them notice the sensation that's occurring, all of that is working with this this theory. And we were doing that without you know knowing, okay, we're that's working right. in polyvagal theory, but that's part yeah. of why this blends so well. It explains yeah. what we're doing. And you have to turn on, on these lights, I think. That's, that's mm-hmm. I, I think I said in our discussion before we started recording, that you can't do, I don't think you can do EMDR without polyvagal theory. I, right. I, I think it, it, it's, it, why would you not, you know? Right. So and you're doing it even when saying, you don't know it. Exactly yeah. right. That's exactly yeah. right. So that's, I, I have three things to say based on what you said. Number one is EMDR is one of the only, um, it, the only modalities in my awareness that actually does this work. So there, right. Dana gives reference in her book to a conceptual, she calls it a river of the story that you're tapping into uh, when you start working with this. Typically, we work with story. So that's what somebody knows about what happened to them. That's front of the brain work right there. That's, that's something that the front of the brain put together to make sense of or explain what happened to them. That's a big problem because what happened to you, you know, doesn't exist in explicit memory all the time. You know, and we're back to Rothschild's work between implicit and explicit memory. The implicit is what is so important. And I think across the spectrum of therapeutic orientations, you're going to get people that care more about various kinds of memory, you know, implicit experience versus explicit. But these implicit capable frameworks, such as EMDR, um, also any any body-based work, you know, Peter Levine's work or Bruce Ecker and Laurel Hooley, uh, brief-oriented psychotherapy, um, they're they're getting at the back of the brain right? Uh, right. and quite literally as quickly as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. If they can, if they can gain access to that uh, in their first session, that's, they're going to. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, so yeah. 
I think it's important just for if you guys aren't familiar with the phrases explicit and implicit to just kind of real quickly, I want to oh, define sorry, yeah. what that means. No, it's okay. Um, there's a lot of lingo with these theories. And, you know, Babette was the first one to use um, that kind of lingo. Well, I don't know if she was the first, but she really explained it and explained it well. Yeah. And so I'll kind of use her, her explanations of that. And this is what I say to clients when I'm explaining the different types of memory with trauma. Explicit memory is the memory that you're aware of. Right, it's the memory that you can tell the story about, describe to someone. Um, there's a start of the story, there's a middle part, and there's an end part. Right, that's our explicit memory. The implicit memory, the easiest way of thinking about this, is when something triggers us and our body starts to react, and we're going, "I have no idea why I'm reacting to that." Yeah. It's because of an implicit memory. Right, our body remembers, which is where Babette got yeah. the name of her book. Um, the body yeah. remembers, right? And so it's that implicit reaction coming out of those uh, deep down stored experiences in our body, in our nervous system that we do not have conscious story level memory of. Mm-hmm. And EMDR, I just I I find it such a beautiful blend of working with the explicit so that both therapist and client have something to hold on to, right? You know, we have these starting points and we have these labels for things, but then move seamlessly into the implicit. And then the beauty of the work is that it starts to create explicit story Mm -hmm. for those implicit experiences. And that's when the person starts to have a lot of positive change. So I just wanted to kind of clarify what that dynamic is and what those words mean. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're a big, uh, a big piece of this. Yeah. So the second thing that I wanted to say in in response to your comment about, you know, doing this work to help them avoid having to go to dorsal vagal um, is another conceptual understanding of the theory, which is, you know, this one thing that makes it uh, so much stronger in empirical research uh, and what uh, Stephen Porges did uh, most seminally is understanding the links between the autonomic nervous system and what's called the vagal nerve bundle, which is the 10th cranial nerve. The You have to understand this in, in my mind to get PVT because this is what animates every piece of your body towards that autonomic response. So the 10th cranial nerve traversing, you know, all of your spine, hooking up your major organs to get on the same the same path, including the striated muscles of the neck and the face. So even in your most, you know, quick, no thought given reactions, you know, somebody flushes in their face before they even know what they're feeling. That is your body. That's how quick your body is responding to stimuli coming in. And the importance of understanding that this is all connected through the vagal nerve bundle is that it's going to sync up your entire body to respond to that stimuli. So that's the second point that make, which is to, to point at the, the vagal break, which is what the research calls when you drop out of ventral vagal. When you drop mm-hmm. out of that green zone into sympathetic activation, you're, go- you're experiencing what's called a vagal break, which the body says, I'm, I should not be in the safe zone right now. I need to be mobilized. I need to be thinking about how to best respond to the stimuli. And then right. if you need... need less you know more resources and you just don't have it dorsal vagal here we go um but that vagal break um is another exercise that dana talks a lot about is how to identify your vagal break and then actually how to strengthen it so to give yourself more resources to prevent needing to drop out of ventral vagal or Mm -hmm. god forbid needing to go into dorsal vagal Mm -hmm. and that's the third thing i wanted to say is one of the originating theories of this um of this work was Stephen Porges' work on heart rate variability. Um, this was kind of like the look, the peak under the cover that showed why it's important. Why does our heart rate change? That can give us, that's the first question that started this whole list. Um, because as your heart is hooked up to that cranial, the vagal nerve bundle, that's what's starting this whole thing, that pacemaker is what's starting that whole response is giving your body the energy and the resources that it needs. So experiencing those three things of um, your entire body being in sync with how to respond to that incoming stimuli, you can start to then shape and, 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 you know, bend the nervous system back into place, which is what 
which is what therapy is. Right, right. Well, and I think, um, you know, in, in the second part of this, one of the things that we wanted to talk about in the next episode is specifically that idea of nervous system shaping. And how this theory really starts to shed light on how our early life experiences create um, the our natural nervous system yeah. tendencies, yeah. right? Like, do do does our body choose dissociation uh, way more often than this other person? Why is that? Yes. What resources were available here that weren't available over there? Yes. Um, and all of that. And Bridger, you mentioned bringing in attachment theory to start totally. to explain mm-hmm. this and how connected that is as well. So for totally. all of our listeners that are, you know, attachment therapists, this is so crucial to really understanding yes. what that attachment bond is actually doing uh, neurobiologically yes. to children. Yes, yeah. this is, and we can um, move into the second step. And to, to say to your attachment-focused clinicians, I believe this is the, the science you know, the neurobiological science underneath attachment theory. You know, one mm-hmm. thing Bowlby, which is one of the seminal authors, and, you know, Mary Main and um, the other kind of heavy hitters within that, uh, Mary Ainsworth, you know, just these people that are so uh, seminal in the research of attachment theory, they didn't talk about the neurobiology aspect of it. They just were giving language to what they were noticing in patterns. Right. Right. Well, this is the science that's underneath it because what we're going to find is that neuroception which I'll define here in just a second, is completely mapped and shaped by early attachment figures. Mm -hmm. Your your predisposition towards which direction you're going to go and how easily you're going to experience that vagal break is shaped by your your, your early attachment experiences and some even uh, uh, natal experience, prenatal experiences. I can't help but my brain, and this will be a tangent, maybe we follow it another time, but my brain keeps going to this when we're looking at um, mental health symptoms and we're saying, oh, could this just be genetic or biological versus is it trauma-based? And with EMDR, we always look at like it's it's trauma-based somewhere and this takes it, it can be trauma or attachment-based, even prenatally. So where this really even comes into there as the nervous system is being created uh, when you're still in the womb, like there is this impact on it and it's already kind of wiring how that creation is happening. And so we look at it as, okay, this just has to be biological. It must just be medication is the only solution to this. But really, if we can have a theory that takes us all the way back to our nervous system being created. Jen, let me... Let me say something even uh, perhaps a little bit more provocatively. I think that this um, changes the way we understand any symptom of any kind. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Let's say, you know, like you said, like maybe this is just something genetic. Well, let's just say, you know, oh, this is just depression. This is androgynous depression or this is anxiety. Um, therefore, we just need these cognitive treatments. You're going to play a game of whack-a-mole with their nervous system. Yep. Agreed. And that's, uh, I think mm-hmm. that's a disservice to our clients without this awareness. Absolutely. So, yeah. Sorry. I know that's, I'm showing my cards. As <laughs> really? <where I'm> yeah. <laughs> you and I have the same cards, Bridger. I think we all do. No fish. Our, <laughs> our listeners are definitely used to, you know, okay. our, our bent yeah. in this direction. And, yeah. and I think most EMDR therapists are, right? If we're yeah. drawn to this work, um, we're, we're looking for a deeper explanation, yeah. than the one that, you know, the DSM usually offers just yeah. by itself. And I think the other thing that is really uh, beautiful and I inspiring about this theory for me was the empowerment for our clients, totally. right? It's sort of like if, if, if we put this into medical terminology, this is something that has treatments that can really make a deep down root level change so that the whole system functions differently. We don't have to just say, oh, okay, your nervous system is this way and so therefore you have to manage it the rest of your life. it's so hopeful. That's right, there's exercises, actual exercises that we can do in the same way that your biceps can get stronger, your nervous system response can get stronger as well. That resiliency, that agility, all of that stuff can actually change so that your cells respond differently to the same triggers. And that to me is like super exciting. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that's the hope of neuroplasticity. 
you know, that idea that your brain can rewire itself from birth, your from conception to death. Um, that it, to me is the most hopeful part about all of this. Why would you choose not to start working on the, you know, the wiring? Because mm-hmm. that's really what we're doing here is we're changing the hardware that a person right. has to respond to the, the incoming stimuli. Right. And I don't think that we as therapists are trained or taught to think of ourselves as helpers that are coaching and training nervous systems. Which right? is ironic because that's all we're doing. Right. I know. No, no, I, I agree with that. Right. And I think yeah. that, that PBT, this theory is particularly exciting because it helps us really step into that role and be able to explain why that's true. Yeah. Right. The tools that we select are specifically selected to make an impact on the nervous system. Yeah. Not just on how somebody thinks, but it's how the whole system is responding. And so for me, this was empowering as both, you know, client and therapist. Um, And so, yeah, it's, you know, super exciting. Do I have time to talk about neuroception and co-regulation? Yeah, I think so. We can do kind of an overview on it and then make sure we dig a lot deeper in our part two. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. So, remember, this is point two and three, um, and there's so much more to say on point one. But point two You're making your case for five episodes, (laughs) Brian. I'm trying. Okay, keep going. Yeah. So, uh, neuroception and co-regulation, and this is right on track with what we were just talking about. So, neuroception... um, Stephen Porges coined this term called neuroception, and he did it because the language that was available to him in the original conception of this theory was inadequate. Because how do you communicate that your autonomic nervous system is constantly scanning interoceptively and extraoceptively, what's inside and what's outside for, uh, you know, requests for more resources from the nervous system? How do you talk about that? Um, so he coined this term called neuroception, which is to communicate that very um, auto-conscious, you know, it's just constantly going. It's just like you don't remember to breathe or to swallow or to blink, but you're doing it. Neuroception exists right on that same pulse. Um, and what it's doing is it's, is it's basically reporting back to the brainstem, how much resources in what direction do I need to do, do I need to give to respond to this? Can I stay in ventral vagal? Because I would really like to, but if I need to come down into sympathetic or forbid dorsal vagal, I need to know that. And it's going to know, you know, your body knows way before you do, way before you can make sense of it, why, you know, uh, why you need to feel how you need to feel. Mm -hmm. Um, So so that's very basically neuroception. And I say that um, to get into the importance of therapy and, um, specifically co-regulation, because neuroception is a conditionable, you know, programmable uh, muscle, just as you were saying. Um, The hope of this theory and what we were saying about neuroplasticity is that neuroception can be unlearned and then relearned. Right. We can talk about what formative experiences made us so quickly, you know, miscode uh, dangerous situation, which isn't really dangerous, but we're projecting what was before onto it. Well, that's faulty neuroception. And that's the language that we use with clients when we start talking this way is that's, that's faulty neuroception playing in, um, you know, that's pre-recorded material being projected onto the present moment. Um, one of the important aspects in that of co-regulation then um, the body does not know how to come out of dorsal vagal without being encouraged by another nervous system. One of the things that Deb Dana talks about in her book is the need to offer your client to borrow my nervous system. Yes. As a clinician, saying to your client, borrow mine. Yours is really, you know, it's limping right now or it's completely on the ground. Borrow mine. And so being, Jen, back to what you were saying of being that meeting place and that safe um, co-regulatory strength for that person. And that's really kind of, if there's one thing I wanted to communicate in this first episode, it's that people can't come out of dorsal vagal without a safe co-regulatory figure. And if they do, it's only going to increase the likelihood of social distancing uh, sorry, that's a buzzword right now. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, coronavirus. Yeah, but so you know, like uh, 
lack of reliance on others. It's going to increase mm-hmm. antisocial behavior because you came out of dorsal vagal alone. And mm-hmm. my body just told me because of the shiver that I just got that that's a very bad thing. <laughs> right. Um, to, to come out of dorsal vagal alone. And it, I think really, that happens a lot to clients, it though. does. And if I was just going right. to say, if you'll listen to their testimonies of their traumatic experience, it's not usually the worst part wasn't what happened to them. It's what happened right after. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the, like the implications for children that well, did yeah. not have a nervous system to oh co-regulate them when they were tiny, th- this is why... Um, we, we know, we absolutely know, both based on research and anecdote, that one of the worst things that can happen to a human being is a unassisted nervous system when we're small. Oh my gosh, yes. Right? And, and yeah. you're explaining why, right? Yeah. That if, if they cry themselves to sleep repeatedly and no one comes to offer any kind of soothing or physical comfort, yeah, they'll stop crying, but yeah. that's even worse. That's, right? We yeah. know that. And, and you're explaining why, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 And I'll get so much more into that in the next episode. I'm getting hot right now. I'm trying to <laughs> control. <laughs> um, sorry. Yeah. Uh, why did I wear a cardigan? <laughs> you know? I don't so, know. Did not need to. <laughs> uh, but that's, to me, you know, um, there's something within uh, therapy circles of, talking about the importance of teaching your clients to self-regulate right um and there's a lot of issue that i take with that and so many others do too um some going as far as to call it a myth the myth of Mm self-regulation that it's not ever uh self-regulation it's actually internalized co-regulation okay this Mm -hmm. gets really important for emdr people everybody when we resource internal resources when we install a a nurturing figure a protective figure into somebody's nervous system and they're with us when that happens and then we install it into their nervous system we are actually providing a co-regulatory experience that then they carry with them in their own nervous system and can access on their own yes Yes. you cannot overemphasize the importance of that um and look at the effect that, oh my gosh, look at the, sorry, I just made this connection explicit in my head. Look at the connection it has in increasing their window of tolerance. Right. Mm-hmm. Why do you That's think right. that is? It's because right. you're conditioning the nervous system. You're right. giving it more resources. Oh my gosh, thank you for that. Thank you. You're wow. <laughs> just led me to it. Thanks. <laughs> Those are cool moments. Um, no, but that's, that's what it is. And so the, the final point that I wanted to make in this discussion is, um, really encouraging clinicians to pay attention and give massive amounts of respect to the role of a co-regulatory figure that they play in their clients lives right um you know i think we just end it there because that's Mm -hmm. that's honestly the the biggest takeaway for me in this work is how interconnected we are you know stephen port just said in the address to the original article back in the late 90s that humans are wired to connect. Mm-hmm. It's a biological imperative. He used that language. Um, you know, and, and that's a medical doctor <laughs> talking about it. Um, you know, we're therapists who somewhat on an intuitive level, we get that. We're like, yeah, you know, we need people, uh, we need connectedness. That's a big thing. We need perceived connectedness. We need to believe that we're connected to other people. But this uh, really gives the hard science to me of, um, please respect the role that you play in clients' lives. I, I know the work can be difficult, and the more experience someone has with the dorsal vagal uh, you know, realm, as well as an insecure attachment style or a disorganized attachment style, they're going to be difficult clients to work with. But please know that the work you're doing is shaping their nervous system every second. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you guys a secret about one of the tricks that I accidentally learned, um, and I do this a lot in EMDR trainings now, but it's something that I learned how to do working with DID clients. Mm -hmm. When I am in the most overwhelmed moment with a client, um, when they have, you know, shifted into dorsal vagal shutdown, I actually, in my head, picture their whole nervous system. And I pretend, well, I I don't think I need to pretend. I think it's very real. I am speaking to their nervous system 
rather than their prefrontal cortex. And for me, the, the way that I access that internally is I enter the same internal space in myself that I would when I'm soothing my daughter. Yeah. Right. We pick different words. We pick different tones of voice. We use our body language differently. We move more slowly. All of these things that sort of intuitively kick into gear and we don't even understand what we're doing. But here's what I think. I think that our nervous systems have an innate wisdom and intelligence of how to connect with another nervous system. hundred percent. Right. So when we're sitting, yeah. So when we're sitting across from people, make that explicit in your mind that you are, you are offering your nervous system. It's not your, your words. It's not your wisdom in that moment. It is actually your body. Yeah. It is your physicality, your true presence in that moment. That's going to provide everything that's needed. And that means that we can embrace silence because the work is happening in a different sphere. And so I like what you said, Bridget, like when we feel like we don't have the verbal answers, um, that's when we step back and say, but that doesn't mean I don't have any answers. It just means that they're going to come from somewhere else. They're going to come from the wisdom in my gut. Yes. Right. My regulated nervous system knows how to show up in this moment. So we take a deep breath and that's how we show up. And over and over, I found that they shift really quickly. It actually doesn't take as long as we expect it to. If we show up with a confident nervous system that says, well, I'm regulated, join me over here. They want to. They really do want to. And it happens pretty quickly. Yes. And I think that goes so much to say, um, you know, something depending on how you measure what language is being communicated between 70 and 90% isn't even verbal. So right there, it's just like, Oh yeah. So to me that encourages me to develop such a mindfulness practice in my therapy sessions that I need to be Mm -hmm. just thinking about my nervous system. I'm hearing and receiving what the client is saying because my nervous system is showing signs like almost like if you can picture like a sign poking out of you saying like hey I'm here for you Mm -hmm. you know like like you're safe right now or come be with me right now Mm -hmm. um that's that's the real importance to me of your nervous system is communicating things that you can't even I think this shines so much light on our need as therapists to be able to walk into a session with a regulated nervous system. Oh my goodness. And knowing our own practices in session, before session, our own therapeutic work to regulate that because it's really hard to help soothe someone else's nervous system when we're presently triggered or our nervous system is, you know, on fire itself. The other the other point that comes to mind for me is the For those of you therapists out there that do family systems approach and model or work with kiddos and adolescents, the need to work with the family and to work with the parents involved in this and to really teach them how to be a a co-regulator of their child's nervous system is so huge so that this therapeutic work can happen outside of the one hour we get a week and can be kind of an ongoing thing. I will give a shout out to an excellent um an excellent reference there um dan siegel and tara bryson uh recently published no drama discipline and just like go look that up and listen to them talk about it because that's all they're doing is basically talking about how can you meet someone's nervous system you know they're talking about it through interpersonal neurobiology which is another five series of podcasts just so you know uh but <laughs> that that's another uh source for families and uh to, to your first point, um, oh, no, I lost it. Oh, well. No, you're still there. Oh, 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 you lost your point. Yeah, I lost my point. Yeah, my brain went too yeah. fast. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay, well, so, Bridger, I think you made your point that we need way more episodes because yes. I want to do a whole episode on the co-regulation and how to work with our nervous system so that we're walking in uh, able to be in that co-regulatory space with yeah. other people. I think that we could talk about that for a very long time and – I, I really believe it's one of the most important things that we learn how to do as a therapist. That's right. Um, and there's some really cool research that, you know, Dr. Irene Siegel, she talks about this all the time about yeah. holding, holding that regulatory space energetically with her clients. Um, and so we should talk all about that too. So just to wrap up, because we're going to do, you know, several more episodes after this, if you could kind of sum up and say, here's the thing that you want, um, our listeners to hold on to as far as why PVT is so important and how to begin 
to view their clients and their client stories through this lens, what's your two sentence summary? I know that's a hard ask. But... <laughs> that's so mean, Melissa. There's no way. <laughs> I know. Okay, three sentences. Fine. <laughs> Don't measure me. I'm just going to talk. About it. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I think the first. The, the first thing, and, I, and maybe it says it all, is that you're always talking to their nervous system, mm-hmm. um, even if you're not talking. Um, yeah. Oh, and that reminded me of the f- point I wanted to make to Jen. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I think therapists so often think that their biggest tool is their mind, mm-hmm. uh, and it's their body. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's your number one tool. So... Um, I think that that you're, you're always working with their nervous system all the time. You know, it's not like, Oh, I'm going to do polyvagal theory now. So I'm shaping nervous systems. No, this is giving you language and turning on the lights to help you see it more clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, of what you're already doing. That's right. That's right. And to let you then be more efficient and accurate in your work. Mm-hmm. It lets us not be as clumsy. Mm-hmm. That's a really good way of saying really it. Good. Yeah. yeah. All right, Bridger. Well, thank you so much. I think that your passion and enthusiasm is infectious, and I share it, which is why you Good. and I are a bit dangerous together. That's right. <laughs> We're going on things. Um, that's a good problem to have. So, yes. yeah, you guys I, were going to – go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to say um, uh, my, my passion and, and my um, relentless – hunger for research is really all I have to offer anymore. Like I just, Mm -hmm. I just unashamedly just give that to people because there's so much out there. there, There's so much in not just this theory, but so much else. And I'm so excited to, to be able to come on to beyond healing centers team and, and to start doing this because I really think that we're on the precipice of something that's going to change therapy forever. I think. I agree. That's my ambition, but I, I love I it, love it so real. much. Yeah. Yes. Well, we appreciate you taking the time today to do this and all the future episodes. And we just encourage all you listeners to check out our new podcast to hear a lot more from Bridger. Oh we'll yeah, we didn't be, even talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> we'll all be a part of it, but we really want him to have a strong presence on there, and we're going to have a lot of great information. Um, so. Listen to that. Share it with your clients. We'll keep you posted on all the latest updates related to um, us actually launching it. Something else, just as we're getting ready to close, we have mentioned our Patreon account that we've been putting together, and we're excited to say that we officially have that launched. So if you guys will check us out at patreon.com backslash Center. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash Beyond Healing Center. Um, You can find a a lot more content that's out there. Um, There's several different tiers that you can sign up for. Um, One just to kind of support us as a podcast and help us keep this going, getting more resources out there to everybody. And then we've got some really great options of additional episodes and resources and scripts and um, demonstrations. So we've been working really hard to get this put together and we just ask that you come check it out and see what you might be interested in. We actually have six new VVIP Patreon members that we want to give a big shout out to. We want to just give a huge thank you to all of you for your support. We feel so honored to have listeners from across the country and even from across the world. It almost feels unbelievable. So a special thank you to Beth from Washington, Brandon from Virginia, Jillian from Tweet Heads Australia, and Tila, Kayla, and Kelly. I don't have your location, but thank you very much. We greatly appreciate all of your participation in our Patreon and look forward to interacting more moving forward. All right. Any final words, guys, as we close up? No, just thank you guys so much for listening. And as usual, um, I hope you can tell how much we enjoy doing this for you. And like Jen said, um, the Patreon is a, a great way for us to connect with you guys more personally. We, I think one of our favorite things is getting messages from you guys and questions from you guys. Um, it's really inspirational to us and helps us so much. And so Patreon is kind of a way for us to just have more kind of one-on-one interaction with you and get to know you better as listeners and offer more um, to support you. So thanks for going and having a look at that. All right, guys, have a great rest of your day and we'll hear talk to you again soon. Bye. Thanks. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. Find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to notice that at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time. Mm-hmm.